What's up, everybody? I'm Brandon. It's, uh, it's good to be with you guys today. Let me just say, I, I wasn't expecting it, but walking in, I got lots of questions. So let me preemptively try to answer what maybe you're going to come up and ask after the service. What is this thing on my arm? Um, I tried telling people it was to make my bicep look really big. <laughs> yeah, that's the response I got right there. Um, no, I have something called golfer's elbow, which is really funny considering I have not swung the clubs at all this year. Um, it's a case of tendonitis, and so if you are under 30, let me just give you a little preview of the future is bright. In fact, almost everyone who said, what is that, was under 30, and I had tons of people that were probably 50 or above. I think I'm a little early getting there. They're like, oh, tendonitis, huh? <laughs> Let me tell you a few tricks on that. So turn with me, if you will, to Luke 10, 25. Luke 10, 25, if you've got your Bible or if you have a phone, whatever it is that you're using today. While you're turning there, let me just say, too, um, I'll be honest with you, we are not preaching this passage. In fact, we're not even going to read this passage right here. We're shaking things up early. Um, so if you're one of those people who gets really angry when you're asked to do work for no apparent reason, hang with me. We're just in the introduction here. There's a reason that I want us to look at this. This is a famous parable. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I want to give just a brief refresher, but if it's been a while since you've looked at that particular parable, I want you to be able to put eyes on it, to be able to remember what's going on. And the reason that we're going to do this is I feel like this particular parable provides much needed context for the passage we're going to look at today. Today we're looking at Luke 10, 38, the story of Mary and Martha. But without the Good Samaritan framing our conversation, you can get into some really weird interpretations. For example, for centuries, centuries, people use this passage of Mary and Martha to encourage people to quit their jobs and join a monastery, saying that prayer was better than active faith. Contemplative faith was better than deeds. But James says faith without deeds is dead, and so how do we rectify the two? What's going on here? To help sort this out, let's look at the Good Samaritan for just a second here. It's a little flavor, a little bit of enhancement, a little context for Mary and Martha when we dive into it. I'm pretty sure that Luke sandwiched them together for a reason. So the Good Samaritan is one of the most famous passages in Scripture, right? Many of us grew up hearing this when we were kids. It's a famous story. This teacher of the law comes to Jesus, and he talks about the first and the second greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind, being, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then he asks, who's your neighbor? And Jesus' response is this parable about this man who was traveling from Jerusalem, and along the way, he falls on really hard times. He's beaten within an inch of his life, but luckily there's this priest who comes by and sees him but the priest just keeps walking past. And then there's this Levite who comes, and luckily he sees him, but he just passes by on the other side of the road, and finally the unlikely character, the Samaritan, shows up, and he has compassion on him. And he shows hospitality, and he bandages his wounds, and he takes him to an inn, and he offers to pay for any bills that are needed. And Jesus just asks, who's the neighbor? And it's the one who showed hospitality. The answer is obvious here. 
It's really a commentary on the second greatest commandment. What does it look like to love your neighbor as yourself? And it provides the backdrop for our story of Mary and Martha. So here at Crossroads, we like to stand, if you're willing and able, for the reading of God's word. Look at Luke 10, verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha, she opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the feet of the Lord listening to what he said, but Martha. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are required. Indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what's better if we get Real specific, the word that Jesus uses there is Mary has chosen the better portion, the better meal. And that portion will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can grab a seat. That phrase, better portion, has just been sticking with me all week. What is the better portion? And if there's a better portion, there must be a lesser portion, Are we settling for lesser portions in our lives? I see all over social media people posting pictures of them living their best life. It makes me wonder, how does one know that this is your best life? Am I living my best life? I'll be honest, I don't know. I look at the pictures and there are always people traveling to like far off distant places like Canada or East Lansing. Maybe a photo of an artisan taco, hashtag best life now. And here I am sitting at home, laying on the couch, staring at my phone and thinking, I am definitely settling for the lesser portion. What's the better portion? What does Jesus say is central to living our lives? Few things are required, he says. Indeed, only one. I want to dive into what that is and look at some of those questions. Like, what's the difference between the Good Samaritan and our passage today? Why does one get lauded for his hospitality and the other one gets chastised? To answer that question, we got to get our minds back into the first century context. Look at what it's like to walk around in first century shoes. So what is going on? Jesus, at that time, he was an itinerant rabbi, right? He's a traveling teacher. That means that he relied on people's hospitality. There were no Hiltons in Jerusalem. He had to stay with people. Bethany, this place that he's staying right here, is about two miles outside of the city of Jerusalem. It's probably where he stayed whenever he visited town. The Jewish halakha, these ways of walking out God's commands, says this, the reward one receives for taking in guests is greater than all others. This is the statute which Abraham, our patriarch, instituted and the path of kindness which he himself followed. He would feed wayfarers, provide them with drink, and accompany them, showing hospitality for guests surpasses even receiving the divine Shekinah, the divine presence. Did you guys catch that? The reward for being hospitable to guests is greater than all others. In fact, to receive a guest is better than to even receive the presence of the Lord. This is based off a midrash. This teaching that Abraham was the epitome of hospitality. 
Someone who sat at the entrance of his tent during the midday heat, the hottest part of the day, the hottest part of the tent, he stood right at the entrance so that he could look out and try to find weary travelers to care for. This is what Jerusalem is known for during this time. It was a town of Airbnbs that relied purely on smiles, no money needed. Rabbinic storytellers from around this time, in fact, recount that Jerusalem residents opened up their homes free of charge to travelers. Here's another quote. No person ever remarked to another, I couldn't find a bed to sleep on in Jerusalem. No person ever remarked to another, Jerusalem is too crowded for me to ever be able to stay there. People were always willing to take other people in. And the key to this hospitality is the tone and the manner in which it was delivered in. In fact, some Midrash even speak about how it's better to give just a tiny little meal with a smile than to give a large feast begrudgingly. Martha is doing what her city and the surrounding area is known for. What Jewish teachers taught, exactly what Jesus taught in the Good Samaritan. She invited him in. She gave food and shelter and hospitality to someone in need. Jesus says what you do for the least of these you do for me. And here Martha is doing this for Jesus himself. So we're thinking Martha made this really obvious, egregious error. We might have to back up just a little bit. She's doing a lot of things right. How many disciples did Jesus travel with? I hear 12. Jesus often traveled with more than just his 12. This is a big deal. She's not just inviting Jesus in. Martha's taken in the whole gang. Jesus and his entire posse, come to my house, come stay with me. And by reputation, Jesus and his disciples are sometimes called gluttons. They weren't, but what that tells me is they could put the food away. (laughs) This is paramount to maybe you going out and grabbing the entire 10th grade football team and saying, hey, why don't you come back to my house for an impromptu meal and sleepover? And although the name sounds really first century, Little Caesars and their stacks of $5 hot and readies were not an option to save the day. This was a family offering to cook, to clean, to provide for, to to lodge a group of weary travelers who no doubt had worked up a good hearty appetite from walking all the way there. What Martha's doing is really pretty selfless, pretty incredible pretty necessary to the ministry of Jesus, it's Martha's sister, Mary, who seems to be the one who's breaking both the written and unwritten etiquette rules of the day. In the ancient job, it was a man's role to represent the family outside of the home. He was to make money and provide and food and also to behave publicly in a manner that reflected well on the family. And culturally back then, it was the woman's job to represent the family inside of the home. That's why Lazarus isn't even mentioned here. Mary and Martha have a brother, a brother who Jesus was so close with that when he fell sick, the sisters didn't even have to name him. They just said, Jesus, the one you love is sick. It'd be really, really odd for him not to be at this dinner, but it makes total sense for him to disappear from this passage. This is inside of the home. If you think that's a bit part for women, it's not. Hospitality was a huge, huge deal in that day and age. 
culturally, inside of the home, it was the privilege and the responsibility of the females to represent the family. Hospitality was a huge part. Come in, take a load off, put your feet up, you're tired, let me get you to something to eat. Oh, it's, it's no trouble at all. That's why it's so odd that Martha goes to the guest of honor, Jesus, here. And she just airs out the family dirty laundry. Mary's not helping. Jesus, this is a lot of work. You and your disciples are too much for me. I can't handle this. This isn't no trouble at all. This is a lot of trouble and I need help. Send her back here with me. This is a crazy move in terms of hospitality. I live in an old home and back in the day, homes had parlors. We don't do this very much anymore. Um, You guys know the purpose of a parlor? I didn't. I see some people shake. This is probably the under 30 again. Um, When I bought this house, no clue what a parlor is for. Um, It's a playroom for my daughter, which is the exact opposite of what it was originally intended for. So when you have a parlor, it's designed to be the cleanest area of your house, right? Guests are whisked into the parlor, the big pocket doors are closed, and you begin to prepare or other people prepare this meal for people. And it creates that illusion that it's no trouble at all. Oh, it's, it's no worry at all. I've, only, I've hardly broken a sweat. I've just been smoking this brisket for 12 hours. And, baking this pie from scratch and cleaning the entire house and especially gro- special grocery trips. Really, it's no trouble at all. And the parlor doors would then be opened only once everything was completed and the feast was all set on the table and it really looked like it was just effortless. Back then, it was similar. It was the woman's job to represent the family well. It's no trouble and here. Martha's coming and saying, Jesus, this is a lot of trouble. I can't feed all these people on my own. I need my sister to help. This is breaking every rule of hospitality. Remember, rabbinically, it would be better just to give a small portion with a smile than a large portion begrudgingly. It would be better for Martha just to cut a few courses out of dinner and have not said a word. Not let this even bother her. So what would cause Martha to skip all that protocol? What would cause her to go straight to Jesus, the head guest, and air out all the dirty laundry? I think she's so taken aback by Mary's moves, her sister, that she knows nothing's hidden. The the parlor doors have been flung open way earlier than this. All the dirty laundry's already all over the floor. Look at verse 39. Look at what Mary did. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Oh, the scandal. But in Jesus' time, this was scandalous. What does it mean to sit at the Lord's feet culturally in rabbinical times? People normally sat in chairs or they reclined at the table, but disciples sat at the feet. And to sit at the feet of the rabbi was to say, you wanted to be a rabbi yourself. There's no thought of just sitting here learning for learning's sake. If you're a disciple, you want to be just like your rabbi. Mary has taken up the role of teacher in training, a role that at that time was not permitted for women. 
In fact, this causes N.T. Wright, a famous scholar, to remark, culturally, the problem presented in this passage is not the portrait of a woman serving, for this is expected, but of a woman assuming, and not only assuming, but even preferring the role of disciple. Martha, I think, just assumes when Mary does that, the whole dinner is already ruined. Her sister's making a mockery out of everything. She's ignoring her proper place. Jesus is going to be leaving, but what about the townspeople? They're sticking around. What are they going to think of Mary? In fact, Ken Bailey, another scholar, says this, the point is not Martha's need for someone to peel potatoes. In our Middle Eastern cultural context, Martha is more naturally understood to be upset over the fact that her little sister is seated with the men and has become a rabbi of Jesus, or has become a disciple of the rabbi Jesus. It's not difficult to imagine what's going through Martha's mind. In all likelihood, she's thinking, this is disgraceful. What will happen to us? My sister has joined this band of men. What will neighbors say? What will the family think? After this, who's going to marry her? This is too much to accept. To put it simply, Mary's just committing social suicide with this act. Hosting this rabbi went from a blessing for the family to a disaster really quickly. But before we go back to Mary or to Martha, can we just admire the boldness of Mary, though? I love this. I wonder if she feared rejection. I wonder if she feared the response of the town. Jesus was leaving. They were going to be sticking around. Even her own sister wants her rebuked for this wants her to sneak back into the kitchen and just disappear behind a pile of dishes. But Mary so longs to be with Jesus that she's willing to just throw off any kind of cultural expectations, any fear of what others might be thinking, any worry that she won't be accepted and she's going to be told to get back to doing what's traditionally required. How many of us can say the same? That when push comes to shove, there's one thing in our lives, one thing in our schedules that we refuse to compromise on. Whether we have to climb tree, move mountains, swim the depths, we're going to get to our Lord and we're going to sit at his feet. How many of us are known for that? Willing to commit social suicide even if that's what it takes. Where our friends and our family, when they think of us, they immediately think of an undying love for our Lord. I worry that people would list a lot of attributes about me before they got to that one. I worry that I spend more time at the feet of ESPN and it shows in my attitudes, conversations, and priorities. I worry that I care too much about what others think and what needs to be done and not enough about finding Jesus every day. What about for you? Crossroads. What would it look like in Grand Rapids if even half of us here today, if even half of us today were as sold out as Mary? Saying, I don't care what the world thinks. I don't care if they think that I'm crazy. I'm sitting at my Lord's feet and I'm taking his teachings out to my community. That's the kind of question that keeps me up at night. And guys, I'm starting right here. I'm starting with my heart. Here's what I love about Jesus too. Jesus doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't push her away, send her back to the kitchen. In fact, he says at the end of our passage, nothing is going to take that right from Mary away. Nothing's going to prevent her from sitting at his feet. 
Some of us here today, I think, worry that Jesus would never welcome us. We don't look like the Marthas of the world, the ones who are doing all the right things. We aren't the type of person that Jesus would accept as his disciple. My dad, for the last five years of his life, he'd tell me this repeatedly. I would be talking to him about Jesus, and at some point he would become just captivated with this idea of grace and forgiveness. And then at some point, I would watch tears fill his eyes, and he'd just say, not me, Bran, I've done too much bad stuff. And he'd just shut down. The Gospels are full of people being accepted by Christ. And I'll tell you this, it's almost always the people that you least expect that get the biggest celebration and the biggest welcome. I suspect it's because those who have been forgiven much love much, and those who have been forgiven little love little. The people who know they don't fit, the people who cling to grace, are the first to throw off convention and just rush to their Savior's feet. What if, what if today Jesus was inviting you to do just that, to draw near to him? to draw deeper in relationship, to sit at his feet, to take another step deeper in discipleship? Would that be worth culturally stepping on a few toes, breaking a few cultural norms, maybe even like Mary, ticking off your family just a little bit? When I became a Christian, it was one of the biggest insults I ever gave my dad. I remember him pacing back and forth and just saying, no, no, Brand, not you. This is just a phase. You're going to grow out of this. I know the stuff you've done too. You've done bad things as well. It wasn't until years later that he even began to listen at all about Christ. What if getting to the feet of Jesus costs you a few things? Some reputation, some comfort. Will you still do it? Or does sitting at the feet of Jesus quickly get dismissed by the obstacles when they present themselves? I look at Mary in this passage and I just think, I want that kind of courage to walk with my Lord that way. I want that kind of boldness, that stubborn refusal to shift my eyes from my Savior no matter what happens, no matter what other people's opinions are, no matter what everyday details need to be done, nothing's going to move me from his feet. I don't care about the town's preferences. I don't care about my sister's complaints. My first concern is the love of God and to love him with my whole heart, mind, soul, strength, and body. That's the kind of faith that Jesus calls the better portion. But what about Martha? Remember, her actions are great. In fact, she's, sitting, she's fitting with all the norms of Jerusalem and the surrounding area. For her day, she's just checking every box. She's doing what the Good Samaritan was just praised for doing, what her rabbinic teachers told her to do it, yet Luke calls her distracted. And there's certainly a difference between the Good Samaritan and Martha, but what is it? Can you put your finger on the difference between the two? The Good Samaritan, I think, is commentary on the second greatest commandment. This story, I think, is commentary on the first greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Mary gets it right, but Martha gets the order flipped. Look at verse 40. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. 
This is Luke writing, and Luke is a historian in the first century. He went to investigate the claims of Jesus, and he interviewed all these people, and he took painstaking efforts to make sure that all the stories were accurate. I have no doubt that he met with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. In fact, I'm guessing that this is Mary's words right here about herself. I'm guessing she told Luke, Mary was at the feet of Jesus, but me? Oh, I was distracted by all the details. The Greek word for distracted there connotates being pulled away by something. It's like there were all the details of the day were like weights on Mary's legs at the beach. She's trying to swim and keep her head above water, but they just keep pulling her down. They keep engulfing her. To which Jesus responds in verse 41, Martha, Martha. Even that doubling of her name is intentional there. It's not as demeaning as it sounds. For a long time, I've read this kind of like a pat on the head, like, oh, Brandon, Brandon, you sure tried. This is actually a thing, a phenomenon that happens, and it's accompanied by great love. God says this throughout Scripture. Jesus says it, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, as he's just weeping over the city. Simon, Simon, Satan longs to sift you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus isn't going to do what Martha's commanding him. Yes, she's commanding Jesus. The only command in this passage is Martha trying to order Jesus to do something. He's not going to listen, but he does honor her and show his great love for her, even in his response. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are required, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen the better portion, and it will not be taken away from her. Jesus paints a picture of a woman who's just overwhelmed. She's anxious. She's troubled by many things. In her focus on these things, she's forgetting the most important person. The circumstances are important, but they're not as important as the Lord sitting right before her. It's all about proper ordering here. Just like the Good Samaritan where the priest and the Levite chose cleanliness and other things over hospitality. Here, Jesus is ratcheting it up, going to the next tier and saying, it's not just about, I'm not about to let Martha settle for the lesser thing. I'm not about to let her put hospitality over loving the Lord her God. Instead, he's going to remind her of the better portion. So if we let his words do that for us today, too, we have to ask, what's worrying us? What's pulling our gaze away from our Lord? What causes our eyes to focus on the preparations instead of our prince? Mary's fixated on the guest, but Martha's fixated on the work, even the work of caring for the guest Do you get the difference, though? It's subtle, but it's important. Matt Stoll, our nation's pastor, has been talking a lot recently about the king in the kingdom, and it's been messing with a number of us. I've been wondering, do we let the kingdom distract us from the king? I get a chance to be a part of a church and do ministry a lot and and, and, and. All of us do, whether it's at home or it's in our jobs or it's on our street corners, um, being a a mom, being a dad, being uh, a boyfriend, girlfriend, uh, daughter, 
all these different roles that we get a chance to do, but do we let the kingdom work that we get to do in there distract us from the king who's ultimately over that kingdom? The Bible refuses to let us choose the lesser portion over the better portion. The Bible refuses to let us get comfortable to all the social justice warriors out there, and I hope there's a lot of them. Don't forget your king. To all the prayer warriors who are just naturally the more contemplative type. Don't forget the good Samaritan that reminds us that faith without deeds is dead. The Bible won't let us get comfortable. It won't let us settle for an either-or type of spirituality. But are we? The gospel always comforts the afflicted, but it also afflicts the comfortable. And are we too comfortable today with one or the other? So how do we know if that's us? How do we know if we're misordering our life, if we're running around distracted from the better portion that Jesus talks about? I think a big clue is in verse 40. Martha's conversation with Jesus takes this unexpected turn while she's trying to rebuke her sister. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. What word is repeated throughout Martha's request? Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me? That I have to do everything by myself? Tell her to help me. The nature of hospitality centers on your guest and caring for your guest. And yet, Martha's speech is all about herself. Three times in there, she just slips into this me language. She calls Jesus our Lord, but she's concerned about getting his help with her plans rather than sitting at his feet like Mary and learning what his plans are and how she can help in them. It's as if Mary's actions have just kind of like taken this small block out of the side of Martha's. Uh, Martha and her bitterness is just spewing out. Don't you care, Lord? Does no one care about me? Does no one see what I'm doing? Recognize me? Realize this? Want to help me? Recognize that what I'm doing is most important and other people should be more like me. The priority to Martha's meal is the presentation, but subtly it's about herself. But before we're too hard on Martha, how do we know if this is us too? How do we know if there's too much self underneath our apparent good deeds? I think the text gives us a few practical helps. Let me ask him this way. How do we react when things don't go our way? Are we serving out of duty or delight? When our service starts to be marked with compulsion and bitterness, it's a sure sign that we're going for the lesser portion. When worry begins to take root in our lives, when contempt for others begins to permeate our heart even just a little, when we begin to judge those who aren't doing exactly what we're doing, this week we were talking about this very thing in the preaching meeting and Dan shared a little helpful example. He was saying it's almost like if you're convicted that you shouldn't have an iPhone and so you don't buy an iPhone, that's all well and good and you're honoring your conviction but when you begin to look at other people who have an iPhone and you begin to judge them and begin to feel like they're less than and they should be more like you, it's a sure sign that you're settling for the lesser portion like Martha here. Martha has missed out on the greater portion. Again, there's nothing wrong with what Martha's doing. 
Just like there's nothing wrong with taking time, planning an amazing family vacation, all the details, all the coordination, so that your family can make wonderful memories. But if you're so distracted by those details that you forget to ever even spend time with your family, you're missing the better portion. This passage gently reminds us, keep the main thing the main thing. Throw off anything that distracts you from the call to know and love God with your whole heart. Time with Jesus is more important than preparing an elaborate meal for him, than serving in your local church youth group, than fasting, than memorizing huge chunks of scripture, because service of the hand can't supersede service of the heart. Because service of the heart, the heart is what will ultimately guide your hand. And if you keep your eyes on Jesus and your heart on him, I have no doubt that these actions are going to follow, but they're not going to be filled with compulsion and bitterness and judgment, but joy. So here's the invitation today. Jesus is inviting all of us today to come sit at his feet That invitation is still as real today as it was in the first century. He's saying, quit worrying about the meal. Quit worrying about all the distractions and the the things of this world. Man doesn't live on bread alone anyways. We live on every word that comes from the mouth of our God. You want to feast? Jesus says, come feast on me and you'll never hunger again. In fact, Scripture ends that way ends with Jesus holding a huge feast. It's called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, where Jesus is kind of the ultimate Martha. All the preparations are done. All the details are completed by his death and resurrection. All that's left is for us to just come sit at his feet and enjoy. Without fear of rejection, but just gracious welcome. In fact, Jesus says in Revelation 3, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and they open the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. So the question for you today is, will you open that door a little further? Or are we too distracted, too pulled away by the busyness and the details and the stuff and the preparations that we can't even hear that faint knock anymore? I want to give you a minute to just think through a couple things. Perfect timing for that wonderful ringtone. (laughs) Just got to acknowledge it. Don't get distracted now, all right? I mean it, though. We believe that Jesus is not just contained in the pages of this book. He's real, he's alive, and he's active. And let me just ask you today, a couple questions. Are there things that you would need to let go of today? Things that you need to put down, things that have begun to become a distraction, pulling you away from the main thing. What do you need to lay down today? And are there things that you need to pick up? Is there an intentionality of, you know what, every day I'm going to get to the feet of my Lord. And so I need to maybe implement a few things, make a couple changes. So here's what I want to do. While the band comes up, I just want to give you guys a minute to just silently sit and reflect? Are there things that you need to pick up, things that you need to lay down? I'm not asking you to take 20 steps today, but maybe think through what are a couple tangible steps that you can implement to move closer to your Lord today.
to reprioritize things. Let me just pray. Lord, help us to see through the lesser portions we choose and to fixate and to to see the beauty of the greater portion you provide. Challenge us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.